Hi folks, Brandon here with a quick show note before we start our program. As of this recording, our Indiegogo campaign to help me not die on a tropical island has 93 backers and is not just fully funded, it is funded to the tune of 134%. You people have come through in such a generous way, and I am deeply grateful and humbled. I'll be heading out to St. Croix in a few weeks to meet up with future WellPod guest Tom McElroy, and I hope to honor your commitment with some truly outstanding episodes for Season 3. And when I get back, Anson and I will get down to the business of signing thank you cards and learning to engrave coconuts. Did I mention neither of us are skilled engravers? Fair warning, results may vary. Also, your contributions represent the only money we have ever received for producing this podcast, so that extra 34% will not be blown on booze or fancy pogo sticks. We can now finally start reimbursing ourselves for all that equipment we purchased over two years ago when we first started this. So from Anson and I both, thank you. Thank you. And now, on with the show. Hey, Wompod listeners, just a quick note to let you know there's some explicit language in this episode, and I don't think I can get more explicit than that. Just in time, fire engines. It's Brooklyn. Did the revolution start? Is that what I'm hearing? Okay. Um, I'll start off. Want me to start off? Welcome to The Drop. I am Brandon Edgens. And I am Anson Mount. And I think it should be Welcome to the Well. Because we're still a well, right? We never really figured that out. But so then what should I call it? Welcome welcome to the well. Drop. (laughs) Welcome to the well. And welcome to the drop. Two shows in one. And for those listeners who might not be familiar with our show, the drop is a segment that we're doing between seasons as a way to keep up with our listeners and let them know what we've been experiencing in the arts that's making us excited. Uh, so if you are new to the show, we, we suggest you actually go back to the beginning of our episodes and start listening from there. Mm-hmm. And with that said, let's get on with the drop. All right. Uh, we're going to, this is going to feel a little bit like a repeat of the last one. Is it? Yeah, it is. Because I'm going to start off with, you just came back from exotic fill in the blank. <laughs> That's true. My wife and I just got back from Vietnam, which was, uh, an incredible experience. Um, it was originally, um, our idea for a honeymoon and we finally got to take it. Uh, my wife's family is from Vietnam and she'd never been. And that was the primary reason that we wanted to go. Um, and we uh, actually went and found her family's hometown and found her distant cousin and her great uncle, none of whom speak any English. And uh, Dara doesn't speak any Vietnamese. She can understand it a yeah, little yeah, bit. Yeah, she a little. Um, and we had we were reliant upon Google Translate. But um, really the highlight of the of the trip was getting to watch my wife um, go with her distant relatives and pay respects to the ancestors at the graveyard, uh, which is really like a bog. It's kind of swampy. It's, it's, you, there are a lot of graveyards there that are built on unusable land. Okay. And we had to buy galoshes and, and to really? go in there. Yeah. Um, 
it was so so boggy in the middle of of paying respects to her ancestors there's actually a couple of guys came walking through frog gigging <laughs> which i'm not sure is normal i think maybe just one of them woke up one day and went hey i know where nobody's been frog gigging yet because they did look a little uh they looked a little embarrassed walking right by us as we were mm-hmm. <laughs> bowing and lighting incense but there was this one moment that was um it was really touching um you know, you, you, one of the things you do is you light paper money to send to the ancestors to mm-hmm. use in the afterlife. And, and it was very windy that day. And, and Dara's great uncle at one point uh, used his cane to hold the money down and put her hand on the cane and showed her how to roll it so that the money would still mm-hmm. burn and not fly away. And mm-hmm. it was just this really simple moment between mm-hmm. these two people who'd never met before didn't speak the same language, but are connected by blood right. and both doing the same thing. Um, this commune, this, this communion with their, their family. And it was really, it was very, very touching, but Vietnam as a country in general was very interesting because, you know, I mean, they are in the middle of massive transition. That country mm-hmm. is changing so fast. Um, capitalism free market capitalism it is taken hold and everybody's into it they get it to an extent there's mm-hmm. what was interesting is that we would go to places sometimes and people would everybody got their hustle going on but you'd go to like for instance you go to a, a street market and there would be like not just one person selling ice cream rolls mm-hmm. and we were looking for Dara really wanted to find traditional Vietnamese desserts, but there was like an mm. ice cream roll cart and then there was another ice cream roll cart and then there was another ice cream roll cart. <laughs> and then there was somebody selling coconut ice cream and mm. somebody else smelling, selling coconut ice cream, making it exactly the same right. way. Another market we went uh. to, there were people selling little Vietnamese pizzas and then there's like 30 of them all selling exactly the same thing. And we saw this time and time and time again. And I'm thinking to myself, Okay, maybe they 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 haven't quite caught on to the sort of creativity of capitalist competition, mm-hmm. you know, and maybe that's the missing element, the that, innovation that, part. And, yeah, and so we're having Christmas dinner at a at a B and B that's run by this Canadian guy who's been living there for a while and has a Vietnamese wife. And at the table was also a, a Vietnamese fellow uh, who now lives in Australia. But I. I I gave them my theory about this and they both immediately started shaking their head and said, no, 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 no. And I said, okay, what, what is it? And the Canadian guy said, this is a city, we were in Dalat. He said, this is a city of 300,000 people. Mm -hmm. There is one street that you can go to to buy rice. Mm -hmm. And that's all that's on that street is rice vendors. Mm -hmm. And they're all on that street because the Vietnamese village mindset is, Things are in a specific place so that you can find them. Sure. Right? And so what they do is they all end up sort of in the same place. They settle on, and it's all the same rice, mm-hmm. but they all, all the shop owners sort of settle on what they think is a fair price. And it's not price fixing. It's a fair, it's a fair right. price. Uh-huh. But they settle on a price. And then after that, he said, everything's just interpersonal relationships. And so that way it's community and it's not, there's no competition. Right? That's what, right. And and I'm hearing this, and I'm like, "That's un-American." I'm like, "Okay, I, I, I guess I, I get that, but I'm missing the part where, like, 
one rice vendor systematically undermines all the other rice vendors, <laughs> then buys them all out and creates a rice monopoly. Like, when's that happen? <laughs> you know, you, you know, new capitalist pig. <laughs> the, the American in me is literally kind of offended. I'm like, I'm fine. This thing wells up in me. I'm like, what do you mean there's no competition? <laughs> They're also the same rice for the same price. And all that makes a difference is interpersonal relationships. This is not American. <laughs> Clearly. What, 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 what's interesting, like I had the experience, you know, like the, everything being sold in the same place. I get that. But I am kind of surprised that it's also the same pancake, the same yeah. pizza, the same the same brand, everything, too. Right. At least you would think there would be some, like, yeah. okay, 15 uh, ice cream vendors in a row, but at least one of them would be selling something different. Mango. <laughs> right? Right. But no. Wow. Yeah. And, and I think there's something in the culture, too, that's also like you don't want it's eh, you don't want to stand out. There's something in uh, collective cultures standing out is kind of arrogant, mm-hmm. you know? Saying, yeah, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Saying like, well, I'm because you are and Americans. We, we've normalized this thing like I'm different. I'm special. I'm better. You know, but that's that's gross right. over there. It's insulting. Yeah, you know. I have a feeling that like if one of them tried to underbid the other rice vendors, they'd be kind of socially ostracized. I always find like when I you know travel someplace really new, there's something ineffable about the experience of being there that's hard to put into words. You just know that you're surrounded by a people who have by a culture that's just very different than the one you grew up in, and it's I don't know. I feel it sort of in my bones before I can explain it, before I can articulate it. There's this feeling of. Everyone here thinks very differently than any way I've ever thought before. Mm-hmm. This is, they're breathing a different air. Yeah. Yeah. You know? And one, one other little anecdote I'll share is, is what's interesting about the Vietnam language is that like Korean, it, it's not a character based language anymore. It used to be, uh. but it's now an alphabetical oh. language. Like mm-hmm. if you look at Korean, it looks like characters actually not. That's actually an alphabet that's been around for about 120 years because at a certain point when Westerners showed up in Asia, you know, and they, they looked at these character systems that is sometimes number in the high three thousands in these characters that stand for ideas or objects and you can combine them. But you know, you, you have to be able to memorize thousands of mm-hmm. characters. And if you're not writing every day, um, it, it, it's a very difficult language to keep your hand on. But with an alphabet, it's, it's very easy to remember and it's, it's phonetic, mm-hmm. you know, it has a phonetic connection to it on the page, you know, kind of what it sounds like. So when you look at Vietnamese written and all the signs, it, they're, it's Western letters. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. And it, because it was transliterated, um, by a French right. missionary in the mid 18th century, right? Mm-hmm. But what this means then is that it sounds nothing like what it looks because that was, first of all, a different kind of French, probably. And those pronunciations are, they just sound very different to us. So, so there are both on the maps and in the signage. They're pronounced very different than what it looks to, like to us as English speakers, mm-hmm. and and in the pronunciations. So I'm, for instance, I'm at a, uh, I was at the breakfast buffet at our hotel one morning, and this young lady who works there. And first of all, hats off to anybody who tries to learn English. It is a weird language. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> and she's coming up, and she's wants to tell me that the 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 
the buffet is closing in, in 10 minutes, right? Now, if you look at, the, for instance, the letter U, you know, to mm-hmm. us as English speakers, our the chances are, especially if it comes after a consonant, that's mm-hmm. going to be pronou- pronounced uh pretty much most of the time. Not so in French. Mm-hmm. <laughs> in French, that most of the time, that's going to be ooh. Mm-hmm. So the way it comes out, um, her pronunciation of buffet comes out more buffer. Mm-hmm. And I think she's telling me when she says this, that the book fair is closing in 10 minutes. <laughs> okay. And it's, it's early. I'm still waking up naturally, but <laughs> oh God, so I, lo- I look at her and, and I'm, and I say, that's great. I happen to need a new one. Where is it? And the look on this young lady's face is like, such confusion <laughs> right and she points at the buffet and says the buffet is closing in 10 minutes man right but in her yes, yes accent yes. and to me it sounds like she's saying the book fair is closing in 10 minutes so while she's I pointing say, and, at, and, the at the buffet, buffet and, but i all i can fathom is she's pointing at the wall yes meaning that the book fair is in the next hall yes so i say okay so how do how do i get there do i go out of the dining room and then over and back in <laughs> she's she's even more confused <laughs> and she's probably thinking is this person mentally challenged? <laughs> and so she points at my feet and uh, then sweeps them across the oh floor my God. to the first buffet table, which is like 10 feet away from Like me. programming like a robot. And she goes, buffet close in 10 minutes. I'm like, oh, the buffet and I'm an idiot. <laughs> but what about the book fair? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to ask. Where did the idea of book fair come into your head? It's, it just sounded it just like sounded what you were saying. There was no nothing else that had like uh-uh. suggested or incepted the idea of a local book fair into your mind. You just heard book fair and you thought book fair. <laughs> yeah. Yes, because naturally in the morning someone's going to come warn you <laughs> the, the book, book fair is closing. <laughs> Please, you have to get the book fair quickly before the eggs get cold. <laughs> I guess that concludes the travel portion of the show. Yeah. I mean, let's talk about the book that you, this first time in Mm -hmm. this podcast that Brandon has actually written to me and said, you have to read this before we talk about it. And what's the name of the book? Our band could be your life. Right. By Michael Azarad. Yeah. And it's actually came out in 2001. So I'm a little slow on the uptake. It's about the hardcore scene in American music. And there's different ways to define hardcore. It's punk. It became alternative. And he's, well, he has his own story about why he wrote what he wrote. I was uh, watching, um, I think it was like a 10-part series from like Time Life, um, The History of Rock. And it was on VHS. That's how long ago it was. And I got up to the punk section and it, it went from 
uh, like the Sex Pistols and the Ramones, and and then it went to uh, Talking Heads, and then it suddenly skipped from Talking Heads to Nirvana, and completely skipping an entire decade of music, some really important influential bands, and like Who's Who Do or Sonic Youth or The Replacements, um, and I thought, you know, like, wow, what a crazy omission. I thought. <clears throat> I thought maybe I had, you know, maybe missed something or blacked out for 10 minutes when they did this, <laughs> the, uh, the whole section on American indie rock in the eighties, but they hadn't, they just skipped over it, just didn't exist. And I realized that, that, that whole period has been, had been skipped over in a lot of rock histories, even though it gave rise to the, uh, alternative rock phenomenon that the media was so in love with, but they just completely ignored the basis of it. And I thought, someone should do something about that. And then I thought, maybe I should do something about that. And funnily enough, that's right in line with the whole ethos of the book, which is DIY, do it yourself. So I did it myself. Excellent. And also, though, also though, uh, I had done a, a biography of Nirvana called Come As You Are, The Story of Nirvana. And... That was a very successful book, um, changed my life, uh, that whole experience. And I kind of wanted to write the prequel to that book, you know, just as kind of paying it back, paying back Nirvana, paying back Kurt, paying back, um, this, the whole experience, uh, you know, what was the basis of that? And, and that was entirely in keeping with what Kurt did when he would wear T-shirts that said Flipper or, you know, Daniel Johnston on them. And it was just a way of, you know, paying tribute and pointing out who did the, the heavy lifting to make this whole thing happen. So uh, Michael's book takes about 13 representative bands that he thinks kind of charted this evolution from starting with SST Records, basically founded by Black Flag, all the way up into Nirvana and then. And I've loved this book because it's really kind of filled out the puzzle of that period of you know my life. First of all, it was deeply nostalgic to go back and have an excuse to revisit this you know formative period, and then also discover all the pieces that I missed. You know, so now I'm listening to Mission to Burma, and uh, I love them; they're great. But the thing that really drew me to the book is the Minutemen. The title of the book is a, is from a lyric from the Minutemen. Our band could be your life. Real names be proved. Me and Mike Watt, we played for years. Punk rock changed our life. They're trying to uh, overturn this idea that rock stars are these like golden gods up on a stage. They were very proletariat very like it's DIY and we can do it you can do it too they weren't even aspiring musicians they were just kids they were 14 15 years old we were fucking corn dogs D Boone's uh, who's the front man guitar player mom buys him and his new friend Mike Watt instruments to keep them out of trouble they don't even know how to tune their instruments at the beginning these guys are such neophytes to the whole idea that they think that tuning of your instrument is a matter of preference of whether or not you like your strings real tight 
Or if you like them real loose. <laughs> That's how at the beginning they are. All right. I mean, they kind of reinvented the wheel, and the but they but the beautiful part is they did it together, and formed this bond and this friendship that just can't that's just heartbreaking for me and it's heartbreaking because Dee Boone uh, died in I think 86 his girlfriend was driving the van and she fell asleep and ran off the road and you know that was the end and it's so heartbreaking because they were such good friends that Mike Watt the bass player didn't think he would ever play bass again because in his world he he was Dee Boone's bass player our band of scientists rock But I was E. Bloom And Richard Hell, Joe Strummer and John Doe Me and Mike Watt playing a guitar They loved each other like brothers, and they fought and bickered like brothers. And I'm going to surprise Anson here and force him to do a very, very short performance with me. Okay. We're going to do a, a little play here, a cold reading. This is from an interview with D. Boone and Mike Watt. And the way they fight and love each other comes out in this brief little excerpt from the interview. And Take it away. Anson is D. Boone. I'm just the average Joe, the guy who's been a janitor, a restaurant manager. But the average Joe doesn't write songs. He doesn't write songs. Well, this one did. You're not an average Joe. This one did. You're a special Joe. I was born out of being average because of my rock band. No, no, because of these tunes, D. Boone, you're special, and you've got a cop to it. You've got a cop to it. You're special. Okay, all right. Ever since I was five years old, people said I could draw. Let him draw. That's right. That's why I'm in a band with him. He's special. <laughs> They're fighting over how much they love each other. It kills me. It kills me. back to the book it's just these great character uh, portraits and stories from the road and uh, another one is the butthole surfers yeah. you read the chapter on the butthole surfers <laughs> and you and you weren't I mean I'm a butthole surfers fanatic but you were kind of new to their story so what did what was your yeah I, did, I, did, I, I knew their surfers. music I didn't know anything about th- them uh-huh. as a, ba- a band and I I, I didn't realize how they were um, a stage show driven band that struggled with how to contain that in an album form. And it makes, it makes sense. They were almost, they were clearly, I think I say clearly, but they seem to be influenced by performance art as much as music. As they were touring, pissing off uh, club owners and uh, anyone else. There's, this is from the book, somebody, a different interviewer, not Michael Azarad asked, uh, the guitar player Paul Leary, where do all these promoters get so pissed off? And Gibby says, 
between the ears. <laughs> <laughs> it may be the same guy. I can't remember who it was, but describe them as just a group of assholes with a band. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I saw one uh, where um, the uh, the venue uh, cut the uh, power to the PA because the uh, projections and things were just so nasty. I, I think they had probably maybe violated some agreement <laughs> with the venue, but the venue cut the power. With Gibby Haynes, the lead singer, there's a certain point you were just like, what is wrong with this guy? <laughs> oh my God. Is it absolute enigma wrapped inside of a riddle, right? I It was like they were, they and they claimed they were trying to be, this is what I loved. They claimed that they were, for a while, they were trying to be the worst band in the world. Mm-hmm. And now that can seem like and maybe even be a joke on its surface, surface mm-hmm. but when you really commit to that and then you keep going, man, that that opens up a kind of freedom yeah. that most artists don't yeah. ever get to experience because that there are no there's nothing you could do to screw up. There's no um fencing around your technique. And you know, I just when I was teaching, like like you know, the 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 hardest assignment I could ever give my students, and 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 most of them would chicken out and not do it, was that I would when somebody was too tight and working too tight, I would tell them next class I want you to come in with a scene and it has to be the worst scene you've ever done, huh. and it was absolutely terrifying. Wait, wait, but, what do you mean, but when you say the worst scene, you mean like the worst written you ha- or no, the for worst acted. You have to bring in a scene. It has to be the worst acted thing you've ever done. It has to be bad acting. It has to be bad, okay. bad, bad. Just to get them to just throw off the chains yeah, get, of what is correct. What happens if you do the worst thing ever? But man, when you if you start like that, yeah, that is a. I have a lot of respect for for not not just the the joke of it, but 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 the stick to itiveness of. Commit, committing to that kind of a thing and then finding something out of that. Yeah. We would rarely admit this, but most performance is about pleasing, right? You want the mm-hmm. audience to get something out of it. You don't want to waste their time. You don't want to look stupid. Yeah. But what if your whole point is looking stupid and wasting everyone's time? <laughs> yeah. You know, suddenly the walls fall away. You know, yeah. and all of these sort of things that you were doing to try to like the right thing to ma- the right way to make people happy is gone. And suddenly there's a whole universe of possibilities out there. And, and then and if you, and then if you can do that with virtuosity, mm-hmm. it is strangely yeah. enough comes around back around to the place where you wanted to get to, to the, right. at the beginning. Exactly. Is that something that's really entertaining to watch? Yeah. But with them, it seemed like they were also at times trying to destroy their own career. Yeah. And what's strange is the more they worked at this, the more popular they became. <laughs> that story, the one in... Uh, uh, the one in Amsterdam? Dutch, yeah, the one in Amsterdam. <laughs> that is the most... I, I kind of want to give it away. I want people to go buy the book because... That I couldn't believe it. That was yeah. that's the craziest thing I've ever heard. But the one we one we can talk about and probably a much shorter story is the one in, in Norway where he got pissed off at the audience and 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 Gibby Haynes said, Get out and he kicked the whole audience oh, that's out, right. threw beer bottles at them, punched them, kicked them all <laughs> out of the hall, and then said, Okay, play. 
and started playing to an empty hall. And when they would try to trickle back in, you're going to get the fuck out and throw bottles at them. So, okay, play again. Made them listen to the whole concert from the other side of the wall. From outside the building. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and note about Gibby. He's like 6'5". He's a strange dude. I mean, like, he started out, and he's from Texas. He's the son of a children's show host, TV host, Mr. Peppermint. He went to, I forgot which, I can't remember the university, He went, to, but he went to the university on a f- basketball scholarship. Because he's 6'5". He graduated sort of at the very top with the highest marks on a track to become a, an accountant. So he had a CPA license. And then he goes, he barely makes it, I think, a few months into his big first CPA job at a very reputable firm because he was making comic books out oh, of... It was a fanzine. It, it, was, a, it was a fanzine with, with comics that oh, okay. were included that, uh, that, that he made out of... Uh, medical forensic photos of like the worst things you could ever imagine with like funny captions you know and he's xeroxing this thing off at you know at, 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 the, accounting at, at the accounting firm yeah, yeah. guess what happens he leaves a copy there he's fired yeah Gibby's not gonna last very long at the, at, at the accounting firm so him and the, and the guitar player Paul Leary who's very underrated he's an amazing guitar player They're, they met at the university I don't know where they got this plan from. Like, well, I, I, I got fired. What do you want to do? I don't know. Let's, let's go to California. Let's go to Venice Beach and make pillowcases and T-shirts with Lee Harvey Oswald's picture on it and sell that. <laughs> plan. Good plan. So they go do that, and they do that for probably a couple of weeks, and we're just like, this is hard. This is a lot of mon- this is a lot of work, and we're not making a lot of money. Do we have any other ideas at all? Sell our business plan. <laughs> sell, sell business plan. Do we have any other ideas? How about starting a band? Sure, why not? <laughs> That's the beginning of the Puddle Surfers. They left Texas for the first time just to drive up to Boston to perform for a record label and hoping to get signed. So they weren't signed yet. This was just a Hail Mary pass at hoping something becomes of this. Mm-hmm. Where uh, the butthole surfers, who were, you know, uh, you know, I think generally agreed to be total reprobates, <laughs> and I mean that in the most loving way, uh, were also incredibly hardworking and industrious people, very determined and dedicated. Um, at, they they were so broke that they had to tour in a Chevy Nova, which is a, a compact car, and they had five people in the band and a dog. And their equipment. So, like, how to fit all that stuff? They had, they had, a, I think, a little U-Haul that they pulled around, but they still had to fit the five people and the dog and some equipment and the Nova. So, what did they do? They tore out the back seat, the back of the back seat. So it, it was open all the way through to the trunk. And what they did was the three people in the back lay down with their heads uh, st- uh, sticking out onto the seat with the dog. And they toured the United States like that. And they never came back, really. They were gone for three years. You know, they left they left Texas and with no plan. And at some point they all decided, 
don't know where this where they got this idea that they would go to Athens, Georgia, because there was a music scene happening there, not to be part of the scene, not to like network and stuff. The puddle surfers would never think of that. <laughs> they go there to stalk REM, <laughs> and they and they split up. They go there like like they fan out across Athens. And like it's like Gibby hanging out at like the coffee shop for a couple of months, like harassing Michael Stipe every time he sees him. <laughs> and Michael Stipe is like, "Who is the shirtless guy on acid from Texas who keeps staring at me every time I come in?" Even if you're not a fan of this music, it's worth reading if you're a creative person because it is super inspiring. And his book inspired a lot of other a, a, a lot of other bands to form and stay together. Mm. And uh, uh, Mission of Burma reformed because of the book, because of the interest that the book generated. You will read the stories of these bands struggling in the early days and realize you probably don't have anything to complain about <laughs> compared to these guys. <laughs> And they're not making any money. (laughs) The hardcore scene, not all of it, but some of it was kind of the early 80s version of the hippie movement. These were socially conscious young people who felt like the hippies blew it by being too passive. And these were people who were angry about real stuff and were very engaged and very involved and very smart and very well-read and very topical and knew exactly what was happening in the country politically as idealistic young men wanted to change things. But a lot of them are so principled. And the most principled one is Ian McKay of Minor Threat and then Fugazi. He's almost, he's a sage. He lives in a, a truly aesthetic lifestyle. You know, like, even when the big labels came calling and they were successful, they wouldn't even grant interviews to Rolling Stone magazine because Rolling Stone sells cigarette ads. Wow. Yes. And they only played all age shows. They always charged $5. And all of that, a large percentage of that money went back to local nonprofits from Washington, D.C., where they came from women's shelters, uh, HIV clinics. Wow. They wanted to be beyond reproach. Like, no one would ever be able to call Ian McKay a hypocrite and say that he was not just selling out, but doing anything that he ever preached against in his songs. I mean, he makes, he would make anyone, I think Jesus would be impressed <laughs> with Ian McKay. <laughs> he would. I couldn't live like that guy. He's, in the words of uh, Michael uh, Azarad, he is ruthlessly ethical. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I gotta stop it at some point. Cause I'll, I can I can go on all night, people. I love I love this book. I love these bands. Um, uh, what else have you got? Well, the the book that I have this week is something I read a while ago and kind of rediscovered it when we were in Vietnam. Um, we were in a bookstore with a good English speaking section, and my wife was looking for something, and I I came across this book that I knew she'd love. And it's called Station Eleven 
by Emily St. John Mandel. Hmm. Uh, it has the distinction of being the only science fiction novel to ever be nominated for the National Book Award. Um, which is interesting because the author maintains it is not a science fiction hmm. novel. Uh, like my last recommendation, it is also post-apocalyptic, but a very different one because the book is pretty much uh, split between pre-apocalypse, but uh, a very long timeline pre-apocalypse. Mm -hmm. And then the post-apocalypse doesn't deal with apocalypse itself. It, it, it really flashes forward uh, about 20 years, so 20 or 30 years. And so what you're seeing is not the destruction you're seeing humanity picking itself up and figuring out what it wants to be again. Oh, cool. But really like the great novels, um, it's about a small collection of really well drawn characters trying to reach out for each other, but separated by time and space and circumstance and human frailty. It's a gorgeous novel. Um, this is what uh, the New York Journal of Books had to say about it. This is a book that gives one the urge to read it in a single setting. The connections among five people are plotted with such beautiful intimacy and surprise that one hesitates to put down Emily St. Mandel, Emily St. John Mandel's Station Eleven. The draw of having to know what comes next permeates the entire novel. But a clever, delectable plot combined with beautiful, at times even poetic writing is what makes this book stand out. But one shouldn't pass it, but one shouldn't pass it by simply because it contains sci-fi elements. In Station Eleven, St. John Mandel gives us a deeply felt story of human survival, of friendship that endures and abides the twists of fate, of the ability to live in the moment and see beauty in the world as it is no matter the degradation of either the planet or the people on it. And that's a very accurate wow. depiction of this wow. novel. I highly, highly recommend it. It's called Station Eleven by Emily St. John Mandel. If you do read it, give us a shout on social media and let us know what you thought. Uh, what's her... Um I don't know what is this. Uh, this was her, actually her fourth novel. Fourth, okay. Um, and she had published... All of her novels, maybe until this one independently, um, she's she looks quite young. I don't know her story, so I don't know exactly how, how old she is, but her picture on the book jacket looks quite young, but uh, writes with a tremendous uh, wisdom and insight into human nature. You got anything else? I saw and liked. I had problems with it. You did too. But overall, I liked and would recommend Ad Astra with Brad Pitt. Please describe your current emotional state. I'm steady, calm, ready to do my job to the best of my abilities. Yeah. I enjoyed it. Yeah. Yeah. And what was your I mean, uh, critique? I didn't, um, I didn't disagree. Uh, that I, I, I felt at, at the heart of it, like, it, it's all very well done. Mm -hmm. um, uh, every... Every element of it is very well done, from the acting to the mise-en-scene to the action elements, um, the pacing, uh, the design. Mm -hmm. I just feel like at the heart of it, it was a it was a, a storyline internally that I've seen many times before, mm -hmm. and I, I felt like they could have gone a little bit more out on the limb mm -hmm. on the external plot. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah. 
Uh, it's like in, no, it and, but then again, you never know. These things may have suffered under the the cutting knife of the studio's editor. You know, um, I, I I feel like from the bit I've read about it, that wasn't the case. I feel like uh, this was uh, an auteur's statement, and mm-hmm. he made the film that he actually wanted to make. Mm. Um, uh, my issue with it. And I love it. It's weird that I'm starting off with criticism because I really like it. I like sci-fi and I think it's the cinematography in it is gorgeous. It's yeah. one of the best looking space fairing science fiction films I've seen in a long, long time. Uh, it had more action in it than I thought people treated it like it was some sort of very sparse navel gazing art film, but I didn't have that experience mm. at all. It just became the, the, the central metaphor just began to kind of wear kind of thin and become sort of browbeaten by the end yeah. <laughs> like yeah. I, I get it I get it but I think the ambition of it is worth seeing yeah because absolutely. it's because it's it's, it's, a very, it's a small story told on a cosmic scale it's a, very, it's a personal human story told on a cosmic mm-hmm. scale and I agree it's clunky in places and a little ham-fisted but I admired the effort quite a bit the other movie that I was going to tell you about I mm-hmm. uh, didn't get a chance to last night but have you seen this documentary the 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 amazing Jonathan documentary. Yes, you've seen it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. Uh huh. The amazing Jonathan setting off a little bit of a comeback tour. Is he still sick? You know, you just never know with him. Is this a joke? I yeah. I was I. Did you like it? Yeah, I, did. I knew you would. Yeah, yeah. This uh, this is a. It's a great documentary, but it starts out. Uh, as a documentary about this this very famous magician from the 1980s who hasn't been seen in a while uh, named the uh, the amazing Jonathan and just sort of about what's happened to him where he's been where he's at um, it's it's interesting harrowing a bit sad um, you know serious addiction issues combined with physical issues both of which are probably exacerbating each other um, but then he, the filmmaker finds out at, at one point there's another documentary being done at the same time on the amazing Jonathan. I'm making a documentary on you. The other documentary team was there. So is it a race to get yours out first now? Why don't you see how weird that is? And then it just goes downhill from there. But it's a perfect example of an artist finding themselves in a situation and taking what looks like doom mm-hmm. but but taking a breath st- standing back mm-hmm. from the situation and reframing what he's doing and yep. it becomes the best blessing the movie could ever have had because it then becomes about something completely different mm-hmm. and I, I don't want to spoil it for you but I had a tremendous amount of respect for this filmmaker for riding mm-hmm. that horse in the way that he did and that's exciting. It's really uh, interesting to like go on that journey with the storyteller, where the storyteller realizes halfway through the story that this is not what they thought was happening. Right. And 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 by the and by the way, the amazing Jonathan is a magician, but he mostly played well, not mostly, but he played comedy clubs because he was sort of hybrid comedian magician. Right. By the end, you start wondering, is this another, is this another magic trick? And the filmmaker keeps struggling with what's real, what's not. And it becomes kind of meta by the end, which is an unusual thing for a documentary to have to go through. Yeah. 
I, I enjoyed it a lot. So the amazing Jonathan documentary, I saw it on Hulu. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you don't have Hulu, uh, you can probably rent it on either Amazon or iTunes. Last episode of the drop, I was into uh, Dark Crystal. I had two fantasy things. Maybe I didn't. Maybe I didn't get around to it. But mm. I also liked uh, Carnival Row. Mm. Okay, which I also liked. So I, I, I was uh, for some reason I'm in this in this fantasy kick. Right. The Witcher. I've heard tales of your kind, Witcher. So when The Witcher came up, I was kind of skeptical because I don't know something about it. It was based on, I guess, it was, a, it was a comic book first, right, and then a video game. No, I think it was a video game first? from the outset. I think I, so. I, I don't know, but we'll, we'll we'll say it was not a original screenplay first for what, wherever it started. So I was skeptical for that reason, but but once I started once I started watching it, I realized that it delivered on kind of the one thing that most fantasy doesn't deliver on. And by fantasy, I, I, what I really mean is the experience of playing Dungeons and Dragons, <laughs> right? Right? Yeah, yeah. yeah you yeah, know yeah. that when you have that experience of going playing Dungeons and Dragons and going on a campaign, it is kind of an episodic, s- silly, ultimately sort of sort of yeah. en- sort of endeavor. And this was the first thing on film that captured that sort of lighter touch with the material that wasn't so serious. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I always griped about Game of Thrones because it was ultimately kind of a portentous political drama, and God, I couldn't get—I could barely get through the first season of Game of Thrones. It was all like war room briefings yeah. for, you know, for right. six hours. You're like, oh man, I get—I go—I watch television because I don't want to watch the news. <laughs> this is the news from a parallel universe, and. And it just didn't have the sense of fun that I associate with fantasy. And The Witcher gets the fun part of it right. It has the right amount of sort of tongue and cheek. Yeah, yeah. All those those moments with with the, the Witcher, played by Henry Cavill, who does I think it does a good job. Yeah. Um, of you know being like, why do you want me to kill the ogre? Yeah. You know what? Just never mind. Okay, fine. I'll go kill the ogre. If you got the money, okay, fine, I'll go. Right, exactly, because that is the only motivation there is in Dungeons and Dragons. Right, you know, it's like it's like, what are you doing? We're questing. Why? That's what we're doing. That's the name. That's the name of the game. (laughs) (laughs) We're here to quest. There's no why. (laughs) We're gonna go exchange money for putting our fake necks on the line, (laughs) risking our characters. Uh, And and as an aside. I was impressed with the uh, sword fighting yes. right at the beginning. And then I read an article about it, and then I went back and watched it more closely. It's great. Yeah, it's very well done. You could almost argue that The Witcher has better uh, sword fight choreography in it than it deserves. <laughs> but there it is, folks. If you yeah. want great uh, uh, sword and sorcery hand-to-hand combat, stuff executed brilliantly by Henry Cavill and everyone else that worked on it. Yeah. The Witcher. Yeah. And clearly heavily rehearsed. Yeah. Really, really well rehearsed, but it's this, the problem with fight scenes, you can, then you have to look like it wasn't rehearsed. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and that was where I thought they really shined. Was it like, this looks dangerous. Yeah. 
you know, and remembering, well, it can't be because this, well, I mean, it is dangerous, but you have to rehearse it to the point where it's safe. And the problem is that usually they stop there and you watch it and like, yeah, that still looks safe. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but this actually looked, they pushed it further and it looked dangerous again. Yeah. And they did. And, and uh, the director and editors did a smart thing and kept the camera back a little bit. So you could really watch these performers do their thing and really showcase how much work they put into it rather than like trying to get the, the danger and the momentum and the speed all through editing and cameras and stuff like that, where they kind of tend to swish around and you get confused and don't even know what's happening anymore. They did a really nice job of like showcasing the physicality of what it's like to, you know, try to hack another person to pieces with a sharp piece of metal. <laughs> yes. It's, yeah. it's brutal. <laughs> yeah. Dara and I discovered a new show. Oh. Sherlock. Problem? By the uh, on the on the BBC, it's a, it's it's been around for a while, with but Benedict. it's on it's on Netflix here. But yes, uh, Sherlock with Benedict Cumberbatch, Cumberbatch and Martin Freeman. Um, boy, is it good! So well written, and it, it's like it was like Benedict Cumberbatch was born to play it's true. this role. He's so good, and it's really what put him on the map. I think mm-hmm. originally. Um, by the way best name for an actor ever this is crazy right yeah <laughs> i know I, I highly doubt that it's a stage name because no, how could you come up, up with that no i highly doubt when thomas cruise may may Mayputher was shortening his name to tom cruise the other alternative was not tom yeah. cumberbatch, cumberbatch. <laughs> that was not think, a thing think sex appeal <laughs> think cumberbatch mm. right um, but man, is it is it good? I highly recommend it. It's on Netflix. Go check out the first episode, and you'll be hooked. I guarantee it. By the way, speaking of Tom Cruise, have you seen the trailer for the new Top Gun? No. The hair stood up on the back of my neck when I heard the that that bell sound from the Kenny Loggins. You know, boom. Like, oh gosh, here it comes. Fuck yeah! Oh, dude. <laughs> I'm I'm a I'm a cruise missile. I know you're a cruise fan, yeah. Fanatic. I, I will pay to go see Tom Cruise do anything. Well, he smartly uh, insisted that they do all the aerial combat stuff for real. Don't do CG. And man, you feel it. I'm I will be there, folks, for Top Gun IMAX. I want the seat oh, rumbling yeah. because these machines that these guys are in you have to feel in order for that story to make any sense you have to feel that machine that they're riding those f-18s they shot it for real with imax cameras and it is kind of harrowing tom cruise is insane and does his own stunts i guess he's not flying the thing but anyone who rides even in the back in the navigator seat of those things is going to be put through the ringer (laughs) i would absolutely soil my pants I know a lot of very tough people who are like, yeah, I'll go up there. And even if they don't soil themselves, they at least pass out, yeah. you know, or throw <laughs> up or something. Oh, we, we have to watch it together. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know how um, we end all of these episodes with uh, reading the credits, mm-hmm. right? And we have kind of a standard script that right. I'll say that you came up with. Okay. <laughs> and that I followed. 
<laughs> so anyway, I get this text from my brother, Sam. Uh-huh. Listening to you and Anson on podcast as I'm drawing. He's an architect. And I got to tell you, there's something bugging me about the way you guys sign off. It's a pet peeve that you guys repeatedly tap into. When you say, the well is produced, recorded, da 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 by Brandon Edgens and myself, Anson Mount, you should be saying, Edgens and me, Anson, da 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 Myself is a reflexive pronoun referring back to the subject and the sentence. Come on, man. You went to Darlington and Swanee. That's probably $300,000 worth of English classes. You owe it to our parents to get this fixed. <laughs> And before I, before we before I go on, I want to mention my brother is a, a fantastic architect. If you ever need an extravagant mountain house built somewhere in Asheville or surrounding areas, Herzog Edgens Architects. I'm totally plugging my brother's firm right now. Go go to his website. I'll put it in the show notes. <laughs> He's a fantastic architect and a grammar Nazi. <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> Anyway, and I wrote back that I was just reflexively and thoughtlessly following Anson's ignorant lead. (laughs) (laughs) So, note to us going forward, it's me, not myself. Okay. (laughs) Damn it. The Well is produced, recorded, and edited by Anson Mount and me, Brandon Edgens. Are you happy now, Sam? Theme music written by Jonathan Myberg of Shearwater and performed by me, Brandon Edgens. Special thanks to Michael Lazarad for spending some time with us to talk about his book, which can be purchased anywhere fine books are sold. And Michael also informed me of an audiobook version which features the voices of many of those profiled in the book. So now, I guess I have to go buy it again. Until next time, have a great time. <laughs>